Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow Jones managed to finish the day up just over 100 points. I think that was about the high of the day, and we erased a loss that at one point was better than 200 points. I think a potential catalyst was a talk given by uh, Larry Kudlow earlier in the day in which Kudlow raised some optimism over the possibility of a deal with China that, of course, would avert the 25% tariffs cross-the-board tariffs that are going to go into effect at the beginning of the new year. Of course, there's always the possibility of a resolution. And I still think that there's going to be some type of face-saving resolution on both parts to avert uh, these 25% tariffs. Because I do think that they will inflict rather substantial damage to the U.S. economy, which is already, uh, I think, rapidly decelerating despite everybody's uh, uh, you know, refusal to admit that, including the Federal Reserve, and I'll get to some Fed comments later in the podcast. But I don't think the president can risk uh, the 25% tariffs as much as he wants to posture that the U.S. economy is in great shape and we're in better position than China to weather any kind of short-term damage that might be created by the uh, the tariffs. I don't think the president is eager to test that hypothesis. I think he would rather take credit for averting the crisis, even if the crisis was simply a, a matter of his own doing, right? He kind of creates the potential for a crisis because he throws out the potential for these huge tariffs, and then we avert the crisis. But of course, the only reason that the crisis was dangling in front of us was because Trump was was pulling the strings. So I do think something is going to happen, but I don't know why the market would, uh, you know, change its mind based on some comments by Cudlow. Where at the end of the day, if you listen to everything he said, he really didn't say anything. So maybe the market was just looking for a reason to rally, and that was just the excuse. But, you know, I talked to a lot of people who still are of the opinion that it's China that is in the worse bargaining position than the United States. I mean, I keep hearing people saying, well, after all, you know, 
if the Chinese aren't exporting to the United States, then what are they going to do with their stuff? And, you know, as if America just has all sorts of other options other than buying from China. I mean, we do have the option in some cases to paying more money to buy from other suppliers that are not China. So we still end up importing. We just import higher priced merchandise from another country. And so our trade deficit actually gets bigger because we have to pay more money for the stuff that we used to get from China for less money. But the one option that we generally don't have is to produce the stuff ourselves. I mean, most of the stuff that we import from China Uh, There are no domestic producers that can compete. I mean, they've long since gone out of business. So the question is, either we import the stuff from China or we find somebody else that will sell it to us. But at the end of the day, it is the United States that is in the worst bargaining position, not the Chinese. I mean, it's not about consumption. It's about production. I mean, people say, well, the Chinese don't have enough money uh, to buy their stuff. That's all nonsense. If they can produce the stuff, then by definition, they have the ability to consume it. You know, money is simply the way we divvy up production. When you're talking about fiat money, not real money, gold, because real money represents actual wealth, right? Because if you actually have gold and you're using gold as money, whether you're using it directly or you're using it indirectly through currencies that are that are backed by gold, right? Gold in and of itself represents tangible wealth because you can actually do something with the gold. It has value as a commodity in addition to its facilitating transactions by acting as money and as a medium of exchange. I mean, that's another you know reason that gold is money is because it does have its own value. That's another problem uh, that, that Bitcoin has. And I'll, I'll get to Bitcoin again. I have a few more thoughts on that later in the podcast. Uh, but at this point, I, I want to just table that and just continue to talk about trade and and China. So, but the difference between a fiat currency and real money is that when you have just paper money that has no real tangible value, then really all the money is doing is acting as a way to allocate the production, right? You have goods and services that are produced, and then you have money that represents a claim on those goods and services. It doesn't represent real uh, wealth like gold would represent because gold again is an independent commodity that has value unto itself but a piece of paper that is created out of thin air by the government or if it's a digital currency created out of thin air by a miner right that paper currency doesn't have any actual value but to the extent that we've agreed that that paper currency represents a claim on other actual things that are produced and the more of the currency you have then the more of those goods and services that you can claim uh you know you could draw on right so this it's it's kind of a way to divvy up the wealth and if you want to think about it this way imagine two islands if there's one island let's say where you have a bunch of people who are working productively all day and they're farming and they're growing food and they're uh, constructing uh, dwellings uh, and you know they're they're making stuff and they're working very hard but they don't have any money they just have all the stuff that they produce well i mean does it matter if they don't have any money on the island they can figure out some way they can barter the things that they make but now if you have another island where the people lie around all day and do nothing but they happen to have a printing press and they crank out a lot of money, 
you know, what good is it if they have a bunch of money if at the end of the day they haven't made anything? They haven't grown any food. They haven't built any any huts. They haven't caught any fish. They haven't, you know, made anything. All they have is money. Well, they've got nothing because they've got nothing to buy. But if on the other island they've made a lot of stuff, but they haven't printed any money, so what? Right? It's just a question of how do you divvy up the things that you've produced? Who gets what? But before you can divvy up the production, you have to produce. And so in China, it doesn't matter about the money. The money is secondary. Prices will adjust. If you can produce it, if you can supply it, then you can demand it. It's the people that don't create the supply that really don't have any demand. America's ability to demand is a function of the production and the supply created by our trading partners and their willingness to allow us to you know, have that production in exchange for IOUs. But to the extent that the Chinese can produce all these products, they don't need America to consume them. They can consume the products themselves because once they're produced, consumption is a foregone conclusion. It's easy to consume what's been produced. It's impossible to consume what has not been produced. So all the people who are you know, so convinced that America wins the trade war and that China is in this horrible bargaining position have got it backwards. It's the, it's the Chinese, I believe, that, that are holding the cards and America, I think, is in a very weak position. We just don't understand that. And I do think that if the president follows through with the tariffs, it'll become more obvious to more people uh, that we're in a weaker position, which is one of the reasons that I don't think the tariffs are going to get implemented. But meanwhile, you know, if the market becomes optimistic that we're not going to get the tariffs because, the, you know, the president keeps pretending or uh, Larry Kudlow or they keep saying, hey, we're going to get a deal to the extent that we don't get a deal, then that's going to be an even bigger negative for the market if we've raised the expectations that a deal is coming and then we don't get one. Of course, if we do get a deal, it's not going to be as big a positive if more and more people have been uh, expecting one. And of course, whatever deal we're going to get, it's not going to be a big positive for the United States. It's simply going to remove the threat of another negative. But we have a lot of negatives that the markets are ignoring. You know, I've been talking for some time about the weakness that I've seen in the automobile market. I've been talking about the auto bubble and how I believe the auto bubble had popped. And I think recognition of the popping of the auto bubble came today when GM announced that they were going to close down six plants and lay off 15,000 workers. I mean, if we really had this booming economy, why would GM be closing plants? Why would they be laying off workers? I mean, wouldn't they need those plants? Wouldn't they need those workers to produce cars for the booming economy? The fact that they are shutting these plants down and laying people off is more proof that the economy is not nearly as strong as everybody wants to pretend, in particular Donald Trump, who really is taking this announcement by GM personally. I mean, he started tweeting uh, almost immediately uh, that he was going to be retaliating. He thinks this is horrible that GM is doing this. And he is threatening GM uh, with some type of retaliation. He's threatening to cancel their subsidies or take some type of proactive action because the president in his tweet claims that you know he's there to protect workers, that it's his job to protect workers, and so therefore he needs to punish General Motors for laying off workers. And I've got so many problems with what the president is saying here and what the president is doing, and it sets a horrible 
uh, precedent for our nation. Of course, we've already set many horrible precedents for our nation, one of which, of course, was bailing out General Motors in the first place, which shouldn't have been done. You know, there are a lot of people now that are claiming, well, you know, since they, we bailed out General Motors, then we have the right to micromanage them. And no, we don't. I mean, there's an old saying, two wrongs don't make a right. And I'm surprised how few people seem to understand something so simple. Was it wrong to bail out General Motors? Absolutely. It was wrong. General Motors should have been allowed to fail. The government should not have gotten involved in that. They should not have bailed out Chrysler. Neither one should have been bailed out. In fact, Chrysler uh, was bailed out once before, and that never should have happened. I mean, that set the precedent for the next round of bailouts. But if companies fail, then they got to go bankrupt. Uh, they got to go out of business. They have to restructure. Taxpayer money should not be used to bail out uh, private companies. I mean, no matter how many people those private companies employ, if they're not operating at a profit, then they need to go out of business. I mean, that's how capitalism works. I mean, if you believe in capitalism, then you have to believe in bankruptcies. If you believe that government should bail out bankrupt companies, then you don't believe in capitalism. The problem is we have so many people in this country that don't believe in capitalism. And apparently, you know, Donald Trump is one of those people because he wants to micromanage General Motors and he claims that he's here to protect workers. No, he's not. He's here to protect the Constitution. He takes an oath to support and defend the Constitution, not workers. He's not there just to represent one particular class of Americans. The Constitution is about uh, individual liberty. It's about protecting property rights. It's not about protecting certain classes of, of people. And General Motors is a private company. The fact that it got bailed out in the past is irrelevant. They're a private company. In fact, a lot of the people that own stock in General Motors today probably didn't own stock in General Motors before it went bankrupt. I mean, you don't know who the private owners are today. They're not necessarily the same people. But even if they were the same people, it doesn't matter because GM was returned to private ownership. And just because they may have been bailed out in the past, and that was a mistake, it doesn't give the government the right now. Uh, to punish General Motors because they don't like the decisions that the managers are making. I mean, in theory, these decisions are being made in the best interest of the shareholders of General Motors. It is a private company, and these shareholders have a right to organize their business the way they want. And if they make a decision that plants need to be closed for the long-term health of the company, then they need to close the plants. If they need to lay some people off, then they need to lay some people off. And it's none of the president's business to try to second-guess or micromanage those decisions. He needs to stay out of it. But, of course, he wants to you know, act like it's his job to protect those 15,000 jobs. It's not. And first of all, you know, there are a lot of people who are not going to get laid off. GM is not laying off all of its workers. It's only laying off some of its workers. And how does the president know that by laying off some workers today, GM is actually saving many, many more jobs in the future? Because the way to preserve jobs at General Motors is to preserve the profitability of General Motors. Because if General Motors makes decisions based on what's good politics for Donald Trump, rather than what's in the best long-term interest of the profitability of the company, let's say eventually they do go bankrupt again, and now everybody gets laid off. 
I mean, if you don't want companies to go bankrupt, then let them lay off workers they don't need. Let them close plants that are not profitable. Because if they don't do those small things to restore profitability and maintain economic viability, then in the long run, they are going to go bankrupt and they're going to lay off a lot more people. So if the president actually cares about workers, he'll let General Motors lay off these 15,000 workers for the benefit of all the other workers who don't get laid off because the company is still economically viable. But of course, that's not good politics. Good politics is, oh, let's immediately figure out how I can act like I'm going to save these jobs by punishing General Motors for firing people. But we don't want that precedent either. We don't want the president to be able to punish individual companies that do things that he disapproves of. I mean, that's not what we want in a free country. That's not what we want a president to do. That's what a, a, a despot does. That's what a tyrant does. Not that I'm saying that he's tyrannical, but we are going down that slippery path. And people who want to support the president for doing this or saying this, you know, I see a lot of people that are saying, well, you know, one of the things that he's threatening to do is to remove their subsidies, right? I'm going to remove subsidies that GM is getting. And people are saying, well, see, I mean, you know, they shouldn't be getting subsidies anyway. And so, you know, if they're going to be firing people and we're giving them subsidies, well, maybe we should take the subsidies away. Now, again, two wrongs don't make a right. No business should be getting a subsidy from the government, which is the taxpayer. So if GM is getting subsidies, then I am opposed to those subsidies. But the subsidies are not targeted to GM. The subsidies are targeted to the entire auto industry, of which GM is obviously a big part. But we should not allow the government to just basically remove subsidies from one company because it did something they didn't like while allowing other companies to have those. There's something called equal protection under the law. You can't treat one person or one company differently than somebody else. I mean, the law has to apply equally to everybody. You can't pick and choose where the laws apply and where they don't. And you can't just, you know, take a subsidy away from one company because that company is not doing something that you like. We don't want the president of the United States or the Congress, for that matter, to exercise that type of power. That type of power is very dangerous because it's used in a very destructive manner. You have to minimize the power of government. And what Donald Trump is trying to do is expand the power of government. When you do that, you diminish individual liberty. You diminish economic prosperity. You know, the biggest subsidy that GM probably gets, ironically, is not these, you know, the subsidies for electric cars that Trump was, you know, alluding to. I'm not even sure how much that is. And I'm fine. Eliminate it for everybody, not just for GM. Eliminate them for Tesla. Eliminate them for for Ford or Chrysler or any company that benefits, but you can't selectively uh, do it for one and not others. But the biggest subsidy is probably the protective tariffs, the 25% tariffs that are imposed on imported trucks. Right? Why are those tariffs there? They're there to protect U.S. companies so that they don't have to compete head-to-head -head with farm-made trucks. And the result is that they can make uh, trucks that are more expensive than they could make in a free market. And the losers are the American consumers who end up having to pay more money for trucks because of these tariffs. And of course, this is the irony and the hypocrisy when Donald Trump uh, criticizes other countries because they have tariffs on American goods. 
Well, we've got tariffs on imported goods, right? When you live in a glass White House, you're not supposed to throw stones. And that's exactly what the president is doing. So sure, get rid of that subsidy. You know, I dare the president to get rid of that tariff. I mean, I think it would be uh, a good thing to do and get rid of all the subsidies uh, for all U.S. businesses, not just the auto companies, but no business should be getting a subsidy. No individuals should be getting subsidies. And we could relieve the taxpayers of the burden of paying for those subsidies. And generally, the subsidies are there uh, to uh, increase the prices of the goods and services that are consumed. So it, it's a twofer, right? The taxpayer wins twice. He doesn't have to pay for the subsidy and he gets to buy the goods or services for a lower price. You know, speaking about capitalism too, and, and so many people not understanding capitalism because clearly trying to micromanage the allocation of resources at the presidential level is not capitalism, but the New York Times produced this uh, video, and the title of the video was How Capitalism Ruined China's Healthcare System, right? Capitalism ruined it. Now, first of all, capitalism doesn't ruin anything, right? Capitalism fixes things. Capitalism creates things. It's governments that ruin things. So anybody who uh, writes an article or produces a, a, a video segment and titles it How Capitalism Ruined Anything clearly doesn't believe in capitalism. They don't understand capitalism. They're probably a socialist, right? It's socialists that think capitalism ruins things because they don't understand how economics work because they believe in, in, in nonsense. So the New York Times people or person, whoever produced this segment, clearly is a socialist, clearly has an ax to grind, doesn't believe in capitalism, and is trying to discredit capitalism any way they can. And so they see a problem in the healthcare system in China, and they want to use that problem to discredit capitalism because they're looking for ways to discredit it because they clearly don't believe in it. And certainly they don't believe in it when it comes to healthcare. And obviously this type of uh, uh, reporting is designed to try to influence public opinion, right? The New York Times obviously is trying to get people to support socialized medicine, single-payer medicine, by showing that, hey, we had a great healthcare system in China when the communists were running it, but then all of a sudden they, they turned to capitalism, and capitalism ruined this great healthcare system that supposedly existed in communist China, and now that they went to capitalism, capitalism screwed it all up. But, of course, this is pure nonsense. I mean, talk about fake news. This is probably the best example or the worst example, I'm not really sure how to phrase it, uh, of fake news. Because the irony of this is that the video basically featured a hospital. And you can watch the video and they look at this hospital and they show how long the lines are. In fact, the lines are so long that people are actually paying other people for a spot in line, right? Which happens all the time if you don't want to queue up. Uh, some people line up early in the morning and then they sell their spot in line to other people who showed up later. And so they're, they're interviewing people who are online who are obviously upset that they're waiting online for a long time. And they go over people who have to wait uh, a long time to get care. And some people are denied care because care is being rationed. And somehow they're blaming all this on capitalism. But what they don't point out is that the hospital that they are showcasing is a government-owned and government-operated hospital, right? The Chinese government is running this hospital. So how is showing the rationing and the long lines 
at a government-owned and operated hospital. How is that an example of the failure of capitalism? Under capitalism, the government doesn't own and operate the hospitals. So what they are actually showing is the failure of socialism. The failure of what they believe in is right in front of their own eyes. But instead of learning a lesson, they're just trying to blame that on capitalism. And of course, what's even worse is apparently directly across the street from that government-owned hospital with the long lines is a private hospital with no lines. You see, there is capitalism in Chinese healthcare, and where there's capitalism, it works great. The private hospitals have world-class healthcare at affordable prices, you know, and there's no waiting. You can get seen immediately. And a lot of people were pointing this out. If you, you know, look at the original video on YouTube, you'll see all the people that have been in China that have used private hospitals pointing out the ludicrousy of this New York Times article trying to blame capitalism for the failures of state-run hospitals. The fact of the matter is China would have an even better healthcare system if they got rid of what government they still have. It's capitalism that will save the Chinese healthcare system. They need more of that. They don't need to hold on to the remnants of communism. They have to fully embrace uh, the freedoms and the prosperity that comes with capitalism. The problem is in America, we want to go back to what the Chinese are leaving. We want to look at the the, the bad parts of Chinese economy and, and somehow blame that on, on capitalism when that is a holdout for socialism. That's what we want. We want more government-run health care in America. We want to ignore the successes that are happening in China where they've privatized hospitals and where you have the, the, you know, the free market incentives to deliver a good product, to keep costs down, to keep quality up. I mean, what would benefit a lot of the Chinese citizens who are waiting in long lines and having care rationed? What would benefit them is a more vibrant free market in health care. What we need is capitalism to save Chinese healthcare. Capitalism doesn't wreck anything. In fact, capitalism has never wrecked anything in the history of the world. Capitalism doesn't wreck things. Governments wreck things. That's, but that's what the socialists never want to understand. No matter how many times socialism wrecks an economy, uh, they don't want to acknowledge it. The socialists don't want to accept it. They keep thinking that it'll work if we only could try it again. And here they have this perfect example of what works and what doesn't. And they want to put out this you know, propaganda. They want to pretend it's capitalism that is the problem. And capitalism has nothing to do with it. Just like with the financial crisis, just with the, 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 the real estate bubble, just with the, the bank failures. I mean, none of this was capitalism. This is all government interference in capitalism. That is what it is creating the problem. We also got uh, a speech earlier today from Federal Reserve Vice Chairman Richard Clarita. And uh, I was reading some of the quotes. I didn't actually hear his talk, but I read some of the snippets. And basically, extremely optimistic, reading from the same script as uh, President Trump and a lot of other people. U.S. economy is in great shape. Nothing to worry about. They're going to keep on hiking. Uh, slowly, you know, measured hikes are going to continue. I think as soon as the uh, vice chairman spoke, the price of gold uh, dropped and we were down as much as 10, 11 bucks on the day. I think we, we never really recovered, but we closed a little bit off the lows, maybe down seven bucks or something like that. Uh, the dollar rose on the supposedly hawkish statements. In fact, what even made it more hawkish was that 
Clarita said that if inflation ends up higher than they think, well, they might have to make even more hikes. They might even have to be more aggressive, even though they didn't, he didn't say exactly how many hikes were coming. However many they're thinking of, they're going to do even more if inflation uh, turns out to be higher than they think. And I don't believe that for a second. First of all, inflation is going to be much higher than they think, but they're not going to be raising rates. They're going to be cutting rates, ultimately, because the economy is going to be in recession. And they still remain clueless uh, to that. You know, I didn't mention this when I talked a little bit about the stock market earlier, but last week was the third worst week for the stock market uh, for a Thanksgiving week, the third worst week uh, since uh, the Great Depression, since the 1930s. So it's very rare that the stock market is as weak during the Thanksgiving week as the Thanksgiving week that we just had. And the fact that we managed a small bounce today after such a horrific week uh, doesn't really uh, amount to much. I mean, we're still in a downtrend in the market. And why is that? It is because of the problems in the economy that are becoming increasingly more obvious, like the plant closures and the layoffs at General Motors. Like I, I read an article over the weekend regarding, uh, I think it was like $3 billion or something that needs to be set aside now to bail out uh, the Pension Guarantee Corp because pensions are failing which of course they are. Many, many pensions are underfunded across the United States, both public and private. The U.S. government insures a lot of these pensions and $3 billion is just a drop in the bucket uh, compared to all of the, the bailout money that is going to be required to bail out these pensions. Also, look at the, the news on the housing market. Continues to be weak. In fact, I read this article about cash-out refinancings. This year, we hit a new high since 2007, meaning Americans are doing refinances where they pull equity out, right? Where they end up with a bigger mortgage than when they started. This is the most since 2007. And of course, that was the year before the housing crisis collapsed. But if the U.S. economy is so strong, why are so many homeowners so desperate to take cash out of their homes, especially when interest rates are higher? I mean, people that are refinancing now are refinancing into higher rates, probably, than the ones they already have. So why even refinance? Maybe because they're so desperate for the money now that they just want to pull it out, even if it ends up meaning that they have a higher rate. So this is a sign that a lot of homeowners are struggling. They need that cash to keep their necks above economic water. And of course, what does this mean? If more Americans are extracting the equity out of their homes, that means more foreclosures are coming. Because when you pull out the equity, then you have less incentive to make the mortgage payments when you lose your job or when the real estate prices go down. Now it's the banks that are on the hook because they already allowed the homeowner to pull out the equity. The equity may not be there in the next housing bust, which I know is coming. I mean, I can see it myself. I mean, I've been trying to sell this house in uh, in Florida that I own. It's in Boca Raton. In fact, if anybody wants to buy a house in Boca, let me know. It's a beautiful house. I'd be taking about a 30 to 40% loss on it. I bought the house in late 2009. So it wasn't like I bought it at the peak of the bubble. I mean, the bubble had already burst. I mean, we were kind of close to the bottom of the market, you would think, in late 2009. The market, I think, started to move up 2010, right, 11. Uh, but, you know, I'm selling the house for less than I bought it, and I put a couple hundred thousand in upgrades. It's not a very expensive house. I think we're asking 500000 but I'm into it for more than seven hundred, maybe seven fifty as far as uh, what it cost me to buy it and fix it up. So it's a beautiful place. You have to play golf. It's on a golf course. It's in one of the country clubs there. 
in 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 Boca. But you know, I, I'm going to lose money on this place. I mean, you know, I could tell we haven't gotten any real offers yet. The house has been on the market for a couple of months. I just had to cut the price a little bit um, to try to sell the house. But I mean, this is going on all over the all over the country now. Some markets are still higher than they were years ago, but that's just a matter of time uh, before these bigger bubbles start to deflate because the problems are everywhere. I mean, houses are, are, are too expensive and the economy is much weaker than people think. And so prices are going to come down. And the fact that so many people are ripping out the equity from their homes means that the foreclosures are going to come to a greater degree because the homeowners have no skin in the game. If they pull out their equity, then why make the mortgage payments when you're underwater on the mortgage? I mean, that's exactly what happened uh, in 2008 when that bubble popped. And we're going to have to live through the same thing again, only this time with a bigger bubble. So finally, let me circle back, uh, talk a little bit about Bitcoin, which had another rough weekend. I mean, we almost took out 3,500. We did take out 3,500. We got, I think, around 3,450 before we had a little bounce. And But I don't think we got back above 4,000. I think the highest I've seen it uh, was maybe 3,900 and change. And as I'm recording, Bitcoin is just under 3,700. So Again, this is the pattern that we've been in where we move down and then we consolidate a little bit and we're just preparing for the next leg down. I mean, the charts here look absolutely horrific. You know, I listened to an interview finally with Brian Kelly right on CNBC. This guy's been missing for a couple of weeks. I'm not really sure where he was. I mean, maybe he's been hiding under his desk and I don't blame him. But, you know, they call the guy BK on CNBC. I mean, maybe almost like Bitcoin, except uh, with a K instead of a C. But I heard him talking. And then for the first time in an interview, he basically said, well, Bitcoin is the riskiest thing that you can put your money in. The riskiest thing? I mean, risk. I mean, there's a lot of risky things out there. All of a sudden, the guy who's loved Bitcoin, Mr. Bitcoin, after Bitcoin has collapsed 80%, now finally he tells people it's the absolute riskiest thing that you can do with your money. Because I've never heard him say that. I mean, he said it was risky. I mean, I'm not going to take that away from him. He said, yes, Bitcoin is risky. It could go down. But I don't think I've ever heard him say that it was the single riskiest thing anybody can do with their money. Right, because you can certainly do a lot of risky things. You can buy lottery tickets. Is Brian Kelly saying that Bitcoin is even riskier than a lottery ticket? Because you're pretty much guaranteed to lose if you buy a lottery ticket. And I pretty much think the same thing is true when it comes to to Bitcoin. You know, another thing too that I think is going to be helping to push the price of uh, the cryptocurrencies down, and not just Bitcoin, but you know, a whole bunch of them, is you know, a lot of these companies. And I talked about this on my last podcast. All the mal investments, right? All the companies that have been created that need to be it shut down and all the, the people that are going to get laid off. But, you know, between now and then, there's probably a lot of these crypto startups that are still hopeful, right, that the crypto market is going to turn around and they're not ready to, uh, you know, to, you know, to throw in the towel just yet. Right. And, and write it off. So they're going to try to stay in business. So they're going to keep on paying their rent. They're going to keep on paying their employees. They're going to keep on paying interest if they borrowed money. But where are they going to get the cash to do that? Because most of these businesses are not making profits, right? They're startups. They've been in business for a year or two. They're not making any money. And certainly if they're mining cryptocurrencies, they're not making any money because it costs you more now to mine Bitcoin, let's say, than you can sell it for. Uh, and, and so a lot of these companies are burning through cash. Where are they going to get the cash? Well, a lot of them have raised it, but they raised it in you know ICOs. They got it in uh, you know Ether, 
right? Or they own a lot of these companies were maybe funded by uh, crypto millionaires who got in early and now had a bunch of crypto. And so now they're starting businesses. But, you know, they have to pay again. They have to pay their workers. Their workers want to get paid in dollars or in euros or in yen, wherever they happen, whatever country they happen to be living in. They're not going to get paid in, in, in Bitcoin. Uh, if they got rent. They have office space. They got to pay the landlord. They can't pay the landlord in, in Bitcoin. They want currency. They want fiat currency. Uh, they borrowed money. They have interest. They got to pay interest in fiat currency. So if they're if they're holding on to a bunch of uh, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, and now they have to sell them in order to to pay these bills to get the the, the, the fiat. Okay, well, who's going to take the other side of these sales, right? If the market is imploding, if people don't want to buy, well, then you have all this selling coming out to drive the market down. You know. A lot of people still keep on talking about the fact that, oh, Bitcoin is, you know, it's gone down 80 to 90 percent, I don't know, six, seven times in the past. And so this is no big deal, right? This is just par for the course when it comes to Bitcoin. And so this is just another one of those times where Bitcoin drops by 80 percent. And don't worry, because it's going to make new highs. And I've already gone on and talked in the past about how this is such complete nonsense because it's apples to oranges. You're you're comparing tiny market caps where people were investing their play money. Oh, a guy put $100 in and now it's worth 20. Oh, and how much money does it take to make it move back up? I mean, nothing. In fact, if you look at a long-term chart of Bitcoin, you can't even see those prior uh, declines. They're insignificant. The only thing you see is the collapse that we just had. You see this huge parabolic move up and then a complete implosion. There's nothing in the past that looks anything like it. So nobody can look at this chart and say what just happened in 2018 is the same thing as what happened in 2011 or 2010 or 2013. No, it's not. It is completely different. This was the blow-off speculative mania, the end of the bubble, right? Whatever happened earlier was just the build-up to this. So it is different this time, right? It is finally over. And so if you're looking back and saying, oh, well, just because you know, Bitcoin went from 100 down to 20 and then made a new high. That's not the same thing as going from 20,000 down to 3,500 and then thinking that you're going to make a new high. But here's an interesting observation that nobody seems to be making. Because I remember a lot of these Bitcoin guys in the last couple of years were saying that the volatility has gone down, that now that Bitcoin had matured more and obviously not you know, the whole world hasn't adopted it. But now that Bitcoin was more well-known and more people were in it, that it was becoming less volatile. And that was part of the selling point that, hey, you know, the big volatility of the past is gone, right? The volatility has come down as more and more people have adopted it. And so now it's more of a store of value. You know, it's the new gold, it's gold 2.0. And they were actually uh, touting this. I mean, you can go back a couple of years ago and earlier this year, all these Bitcoin promoters were pointing to the fact that the volatility had gone down, and that was a good thing. That was a good sign, uh, and this was, you know, one of the reasons that now the market was, uh, you know, ready for the institutions or the more traditional investors because it had been de-risked to some extent, right? Because it was now less volatile. And of course, the volatility was one of the reasons that you couldn't use it as a medium of exchange because you had no idea, you know, where the price was going to go. And so the fact that it was becoming less volatile meant that it was actually more practical to potentially use cryptocurrencies as actual currencies, which in theory was what they were supposed to do. But now all of a sudden, 
the market collapses by 80%. And all the same people that were saying that Bitcoin had you know, now matured out of its volatility and its lack of volatility was a reason to want to buy it, now they're saying, oh no, well, this is fine. This is normal. You know, These periodic 80% collapses, crashes, this is just how it goes when it comes to Bitcoin. And so the people that you know, you know, can't stomach it, right? You know, they just don't understand, but you just have to ride this out. This is complete nonsense. If Bitcoin is still crashing by 80 to 90% at this point, when it has this wide an audience, when this thing is being talked about daily on every financial uh, channel that covers the markets, when you have the same volatility now that you had when nobody knew about it, when the market cap was peanuts, what does that tell you? That should tell you a lot. And if you are expecting institutions to buy into this market, they're not going to do it. If you're telling institutions, hey, you can buy into Bitcoin, but know this, that periodically there's going to be an 80 to 90% collapse. You have no idea when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen and you just got to be willing to ride it out. There's not that much institutional money that that has that kind of downside risk tolerance where they're just willing to buy into an asset knowing that if it drops 80 to 90%, well, that's fine because that's how it goes. I mean, that's not how it goes. Individual investors, mainstream investors are not going to sign up for that because if you if you're being told it's going to drop by 80 to 90%. But don't worry, because if you hold on, it'll go and make a new high. Who wants to sign up for that? So I'm going to buy something knowing that it's going to collapse 80 to 90%, but it's okay because I can hope that it that it recovers again like it's done in the past? Uh-uh. The, this, again, this decline is going to make sure that the institutional demand that everybody is counting on, right? Because where is all the new buying supposed to come from to lift us to 50,000, 100,000? It's supposed to come from the institutions who are dying to buy into this market. Well, why would they be dying to buy into a market that has just collapsed by over 80% where everybody is now saying that's normal, that's the way it is, and if you're going to be in Bitcoin, you have to be willing to, 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 to tough it out. You have to understand that Every once in a while, the market's just going to crash by, you know, 80, 90 percent. And then if you want to be in Bitcoin, then, then that's the risk tolerance you need to have because institutions don't have that kind of risk tolerance, especially when you've got people who are managing other people's money who are going to get sued if they buy something that could collapse that much in value. So the, the big sell off in and of itself is going to scare off all the potential buyers that all the hodlers are counting on for the market to go up and make new highs. So rather than make new highs, all we're going to do is continue to make new lows for the move. And another sign of the weakening economy is the collapse in the oil price. And I've talked about the big drop in oil prices. We're about $52 a barrel right now. And you remember when oil prices were rising and the dollar was rising, I pointed out that uh, that showed some underlying strength in the oil market because normally that wouldn't be the case. Normally, a strong dollar uh, would be a headwind for oil prices because oil is priced in dollars. And if the dollar is going up, generally that means that oil is getting more expensive. And so the demand outside the United States is coming down. So it's generally hard to see the oil price really rising when you have a strong dollar. It's more normal to see the oil price rising in dollars when you have a weak dollar because the dollar going down is creating global demand for oil, which will push up the dollar price. But I think one of the reasons 
that oil prices were rising with the dollar is there was so much optimism about global economic growth and about U.S. economic growth. And I think one of the reasons that oil prices are collapsing is because that optimism is collapsing as well. I think a lot more people are recognizing that the global economy is slowing down and the United States, the United States is not exempt, that the United States is going to be a lot weaker than what was perceived a few months ago. And as a result, the U.S. is not going to be using as much oil. And so demand is going to go down. It's not simply about a glut of supply because of increased production. One of the reasons that we're going to have a glut of supply is because of decreased consumption, because of a reduced demand for energy in a weakening economy, particularly in a recession. And I, of course, I think a lot of people a few months ago maybe thought, well, even if the U.S. economy slows down, the Fed is going to back away from its rate hikes. But meanwhile, the Fed has shown no indication yet that it's going to back away from its rate hikes. In fact, over the last week or so, the probability of a December rate hike has actually gone up, despite the fact that we've seen weakening economic data, despite the fact that we've seen weakening stock markets, the probability of a December rate hike has actually increased rather than decreased. And this is a problem for the oil market because in the past, maybe people thought, Maybe the U.S. will avert a recession because the Fed might see that the economy is slowing down and back off on the rate hikes. But now I think more and more people are coming to the conclusion that the Fed is oblivious to the economic slowdown and they're going to continue to hike rates until the economy is in recession. And so I think the oil price falling is basically the market's way of, of saying that they see a recession coming and in that recession they're going to see a reduction in demand for oil. And I think they see the Fed continuing to hike rates despite all the evidence that the U.S. economy is weakening and that so continues to put pressure on the dollar to move higher which undermines the global economy as well. And so that is a, is a key factor in why oil prices are weak. But again, in a game of checkers rather than checks, nobody is anticipating the move that comes after that. Because clearly, if the Fed continues to step on the brakes, right, until the economy is actually in a recession, until the car is completely stalled out, right, to use their metaphors, well, what are they going to do next? Well, then they're going to have to step on the gas because they, they, they kept their foot on the brake too long. And so if the economy goes into recession as the Fed is hiking rates, well, then they're going to slash rates down to zero very quickly. And what is that going to do for the price of oil? That's going to send the price of oil way up because that abrupt change in monetary policy is going to cause the dollar to crater. And that's going to cause a big increase in global demand for oil because now oil is going to get much cheaper because the dollar goes down. And of course, a weak dollar is also going to light a fire under the emerging markets, which are no longer going to be caught uh, beneath the rising debt service costs that come with a strong dollar. They're going to have the relief of their debt that comes with a weak dollar. And so that is going to be a big benefit to their economies. And so demand for energy is going to increase there as well. So people are not seeing the total end game. Uh, and that's why I don't think there's that much downside in the price of oil. Uh, we gave up a lot of the gains that we had earlier in the year, but I think we will quickly recoup those gains uh, once people actually figure out the long-term monetary policy of the United States, right? It's not about the Fed continuing to tighten, it's about the Fed cutting and how quickly they're going to cut and, and how low they're going to go. I mean, I think they're going to, you're going to go to zero very quickly. 
They may even try to go negative, but the bigger game changer is not just going to be going back to zero. It is going to be returning to quantitative easing because that is going to be a bigger game changer as far as the bond market, the foreign exchange markets, and how people view uh, the, the Federal Reserve and U.S. monetary policy. And of course, to the extent that the Federal Reserve has to remonetize exploding U.S. government deficits in the next recession, that is an indication that the Fed's balance sheet is permanently expanded, that even though they were able to shrink it slightly, they were never able to completely reduce the balance sheet back to a size that it was prior to the last rounds of quantitative easing. And then when they have to blow it up again, the new highs what is the Fed now? The Fed is now an engine of debt monetization. We are now no better than a banana republic. And in fact, that's what Ben Bernanke said himself when he was first accused of monetizing the debt by Congress when they first launched QE1. Ben Bernanke said, we're not monetizing the debt because we're not going to hold it permanently. We're only holding it temporarily until the emergency subsides and then we're going to sell the bonds. And of course, that didn't happen. They didn't start shrinking the balance sheet until just recently. And of course, not by selling them, just by letting them mature, which in a way is a distinction without a difference. But if the Fed ends up aborting the uh, the quantitative tightening and they stop letting the balance sheet run down and they ramp it back up again, the new highs, then by Ben Bernanke's own admission, the Federal Reserve is monetizing the debt and we are no better than any other banana republic, only without the bananas. Mm-hmm.